0: Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope everyone had a great weekend. I'm on the road again this week in Arkansas. I was in Arkansas last week, too, but I did manage to squeeze in a weekend in Memphis, which is slowly becoming one of my favorite cities to visit. Between the live music and the food alone, I have really come to appreciate Memphis. Of course, you add in the culture and all of the history. There is just an authenticity to Memphis that I'm just finding quite alluring. And uh, looking forward to uh, future visits uh, to the city as well. Becoming quite familiar with the the live music scene there. I want to take this time right now just again to remind you of a few upcoming events. Grading from the inside out, the two-day training will be virtual April 5th and 12th. We'll be in Des Moines, Iowa face-to-face March 28th and 29th will be in San Antonio, Texas, April 25th and 26th. Standards-Based Learning in Action, that'll also be in San Antonio, Texas, April 27th and 28th. So of course there's four days in a row, two days on grading from the inside out, two days at Standards-Based Learning in Action, uh, so four days in San Antonio. All the information for those events can be found on the Solution Tree website, links in the show notes for all of them as well. Okay, as I always say, big thanks for tuning in this week. Big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Tom Murray. Tom serves as the Director of Innovation for Future Ready Schools, so of course we talk all about what being future ready means for our students. And in Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to finish my exploration of what it means to be trauma-informed with our assessment practices, and specifically... I'm gonna talk about a bit of an epiphany I've had as I thought through how assessment and grading play out in our classrooms, and certainly when it comes to being trauma-informed. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Tom Murray is coming up, but first, Don't at me, but I'm going to open this week with yet another plea to all educators, this time a little more serious than Wordle, and the plea is to please advocate your positions honestly. Now, I've talked about this before in some ways when I talked about hyperbole and false dichotomies, but I keep coming across it and I honestly think it has to stop. Now, I'm under no illusion that it will stop because it's way too alluring and it's way too easy, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have to stop. My issue is that too many people, again, not most, but enough to notice, too many people resort to caricatures to undermine an idea that they're against. Rather than simply arguing for a position or saying, hey, this is better, we can't help ourselves and we resort to a caricature of the truth. First example, this false dichotomy of teaching versus learning. I've always thought this cute, pithy little quote on social media was just a complete waste of time. Why does that have to be a versus? Teaching is a means. Learning is the end. And for the life of me, I don't understand why teachers spend so much time talking about how they shouldn't be teaching. But you see, it's the caricature. It's in the teaching versus learning caricature. There's this lecturer, right? It's the teacher that is so distant from the students that they fail to even know their names, that they're just delivering information at a rapid pace as the students struggle to keep up really? That's teaching? I mean, could you find examples of that in 2022? But I'm sure you could. But ask yourself this, is that what most teachers do? Is that most teachers you know? They're not. It's not most teachers I know. I don't understand why we are so actively trying to disengage from the actual name of our profession. Oh, I don't teach, I facilitate. This play on words is so performative. And really represents the worst of our overthinking in education. I mean, let's be honest. If there is any group of professionals who can overthink things, it's we educators. I just think it's silly. And to create this false dichotomy is really disingenuous. And I know what people are trying to get at. But honestly, it just is such a performative act. Another example. You get into the debates about psychology. The constructivist versus behaviorist debate, right? Right. Now, there is absolutely room in education for a debate of ideas and that grounding our educational choices in a particular view of educational psychology or psychology in general is important. But each side of the debate tends to slip into caricatures when discussing the opposing view. So, for example, when constructivists are talked about, and you often find constructivist education in project-based learning or inquiry-based learning, The caricature that gets hurled at them, it's as if their classrooms are a free-for-all, that there are no expectations, that kids can learn whenever they feel like it, whatever they feel like it. I mean, all of that is entirely untrue. But if you want to tear down an idea, then put up a caricature as the norm. It's disingenuous. The people doing it know it's disingenuous, but it doesn't stop them from trying to uplift their ideas by mischaracterizing another idea. I mean, there is without question room in education for nurturing curiosity and having students construct new knowledge and new meaning through the synthesis of what they already know and the combination of that with their new learning. But characterizing this as some unstructured, low-rigor, free-for-all environment is completely unfair and, like I said, disingenuous. Now, before all you constructivists get all smug... You often do the same thing to the behaviorists when you characterize behaviorism as this Pavlovian focus on compliance and control this sort of dystopian society of people salivating at the ring of a bell behaviorists are really concerned about the context or the environment within which one is behaving and the use of monitoring and the use of feedback to guide and support students along their trajectory toward independence and it's funny to me in some cases how the internal intrinsic the intrinsic external I should say debate In that debate, no one ever brings up the fact that external academic feedback is lauded for, you know, for its impact on student achievement. But as soon as that external feedback is meant to improve student behavior, it's suddenly of the devil. If intrinsic is negatively impacted by extrinsic, then why are we okay with extrinsic feedback academically or even at times extrinsic consequences for antisocial behavior or code of conduct violations? Wouldn't an out-of-school suspension, for example, be to the detriment of a student's intrinsic motivation to act pro-socially? Now, another example is the caricature of personalized learning versus standards. And you're going to hear Tom Murray and I talk about that shortly. So I won't get into it now. But again, arguing the extremes... Against a caricature is something I thought was only reserved for politics. In politics, we kind of understand that's the game, right? You take an ounce of the truth and you blow it out of proportion to characterize the other side in such an exaggerated manner that you create this illusion that the election is actually not a choice. You have no choice but to vote for us because those on the other side are, and then you fill in the blank, right? Those on the other side are Racist or fascist or radical or socialists or all of the above or whatever the case might be. You kind of expect that in politics. But I expect more from educators, partly because we would expect more from our students. If a student were arguing a position, would you allow the so called evidence to be hyperbolic or would you allow it to be a caricature or mischaracterized? as though it was an exaggeration, there's no chance you would stand for that. So if our students can't do it, then why do we? Advocate for your position. Advocate strongly for it. I think debate in education is healthy, and in some ways we don't do it enough. And I think partly the reason is that you end up having to defend against a caricature that rarely resembles the truth and doesn't really represent your position either. I mean, people think when they're doing this, they're being clever. But honestly, I think it's weak. Watch for this as you see people assert positions on social media. If your idea needs a caricature on the other side to assert your position, then you must not feel that strongly about your position. Let your idea stand on its merits. Advocate strongly for your position. Bring all of the evidence forward, bring all of the evidence to the table, and assert your position, your idea, or your philosophy. Assert it and, and ensure that people know that you believe this is the right course of action advocate hard, but advocate honestly. Because from where I sit, when you don't do that, the idea you're advocating for and your defense of it looks weaker, not stronger. Joining me this week is Tom Murray. Tom serves as a Director of Innovation for Future Ready Schools, which is a project of the All for Ed group. He also serves as a regular conference keynote presenter. He was also named one of the 20 to watch by the NSBA. In 2015, Tom was named Education Policy Person of the Year by the Academy of Arts and Sciences. And in 2017, Tom was named Education Thought Leader of the Year. His best-selling ASCD book called Learning Transformed was released in 2017. And his latest book, something we're going to focus on today, Personal and Authentic, was released at the end of 2019. So Tom clearly has had a a very influential career and certainly more to come from Tom. So Tom, welcome to the Tom Schumer Podcast.
1: What an honor it is to be. I was actually thinking maybe you were out of guests, and that's why I got the invite. Maybe (laughs) maybe that was it. But uh, no, in all seriousness, love your work, appreciate you, and thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, Tom, it's it's yeah, well, it's it, you know, it's great to have you here and and certainly I appreciate the fact that yeah, no, I did not run out of guests for sure. Uh you are certainly a welcome someone I've been thinking about having on the podcast for quite a while now because you know, I've been quite familiar with you. You you know, full disclosure, you and I have never met face to face until today. Uh quite familiar with uh with your work through Twitter. Um, as we were chatting before, uh, we joined Twitter right around a month apart you were june of 2009 i was july of 2009 so in the early days of twitter uh we've never met face to face but certainly i've i've watched as a follower of your work your influence grow, and we uh, we share a mutual friend, Ken Williams. Uh, I know is one of your very close friends, and certainly Ken is a friend of mine and a colleague. So, uh, really excited to have you here, Tom. And and I want to jump right in uh, and start with your journey, because I'd love for listeners to get a sense of the beginnings and how you became this thought leader. Uh, so, before we dig into the substance and content of our conversation, let's start with the arc of your career. So, highlight for us, Tom, um, the journey. You know, the professional biography, if you will, maybe highlighting specifically some of those impact points that led to you becoming this internationally recognized thought leader in education.
1: Well, wow, Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. And, you know, diving in and reflecting on uh, 20 plus years of just the work. And I, I go back to being 21 years old, fresh out of college, thinking I have a had a clue is what I was getting myself into. You know, I actually, I went to, uh, to Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and I started pre-med. I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. I'd always loved working with kids. You know, growing up in high school, I had done a lot of summer camps, liked being around children, recognized the innocence, recognized the impact, went to college being pre-med thinking that's what I wanted to do. I did it for a year, loved it, did pretty well. But there was a part of me that always said, I don't want to just see kids when they're sick. I want to really make an impact. So I switched over to education. I start my career uh, suburban school outside of Philadelphia as a fourth grade teacher, 21 years old. Again, that door closes on that first day. And I can remember the thought being like, oh my gosh, Like, uh, where's my cooperating teacher? This is really the show now. What am I gonna do? And here's the thing, Tom. You know, I would love to tell you how that first year was great and things went well and I just got better as a teacher and things progressed and. In retrospect, there has been such significant impact from other people throughout my career that have helped me really guide me to where the work that I'm doing today. My first year teaching, I tell the full story in Personal and Authentic in chapter one, fundamentally changed who I was, not just as an educator, but myself as a person. I share the loss of a mentor, somebody that uh, loved me enough to kind of whack me upside the head when my mindset was off. When as that first year teacher, I started to use a lot more words like me, my and I as as opposed to we, our and they that loved me enough to call me out man to man. But there was some tragedy tragedies that happened that year that really gave me a different lens to step back to say, like, why do I really do this work? If I if I got into this to make that impact, why am I so looking in the mirror saying, you know, well, this isn't fair for me? When are we gonna have the time to do that? And it fundamentally changed my lens in what this work was really about. And I really believe this work is about loving and caring about kids first and foremost, and everything else comes secondary to that. So having some tragedies occur, the loss of my mentor and some other things that I share in Personal and Authentic really changed my mindset and lens as to what this was about to be. You know, I love teaching and there I was as an elementary teacher early on. I also had this love, this passion for technology. Now I laugh when I think about it because going back to the early 2000s, I'm talking like this was like the era of the Palm Pilots. And by the way, I was, one-to-one in my classroom 20 some odd years ago palm pilots right and so we think about some of these tools and some of those pieces but i enjoyed doing that so i actually went to middle school and i taught sixth seventh and eighth grade got to do some things around technology really enjoyed that but i had another mentor walk into my classroom one day and there i was i had two master's degrees i was kind of the top of that pay scale from a teacher end you know in terms of credits and that kind of stuff and a mentor walked in my classroom one day and said you know tom I've got about three years left in this building and I'd love to see you running it when I leave. And he walked back out. And I remember thinking, uh, well, I really look up to him. I really admire him. I, I I like that leadership side of things, but it was a mentor that really yeah. pushed me because I don't know, had he not done that, I might still be teaching in that middle school classroom. So I had a mentor that really, um, really pushed me to do that, finished my principal certification. Little did I know somebody else was retiring, pulls me in, I get an administrative opportunity. So I serve at the middle level moved down to serve at the elementary level, was there for a number of years, loved it being an elementary principal, one of the greatest jobs on the planet. Move over to district office, and my superintendent said, hey, I've got a growth opportunity for you. I go and I take that on. We were doing amazing things too, things I look back, you know, 13 years ago, completely competency-based K to 12. We created our own virtual program taught by our own teachers with our own curriculum, I'm talking 13 years ago. So we were very progressive in some of the things that we did. And I then get this call, we were featured on digital learning day, which is now something that I help run. And Digital Learning Day is run by all for ed And again, going back about 11 years ago now, it was one of the, It was 10 years ago, it was, one, it was the second Digital Learning Day. My team was featured because we were creating a, <laughs> here you go, it's going to sound familiar, our own virtual program taught by our teachers with our content, and then offering kids the flexibility at the high school level to kind of really come in and to leave this, this campus per se, like almost that college feel, with any combination of face-to-face and virtual classes. And we did that for three years. And I would say it took us about three years to really get it right and got recruited to uh to go to washington dc In in a bipartisan way. So part of my work, I get to work with the U.S. Senate, the Congress, sometimes the White House. I'm not there to be red, I'm not there to be blue. There to really focus on on student-related issues that we really believe in. But that's where that was birthplace of of future-ready schools. And so I've been doing that for the last seven years, working with superintendents, working with principals and whatnot. So you know, in in retrospect, it's uh, every step of the way I've had people whose shoulders that I get to stand on because of encouragement, because of mentorship, Um, but also the opportunity. I feel really blessed to do the work that to do to influence students nationwide. Now,
0: you are certainly having an influence, no question. And, and it's the technology side, of course, that allowed me to become familiar with your work over the last decade or so as, as you expanded your reach and that became evident on Twitter that that you were having more and more influence and you could see the teachers interacting with your, your work. Uh, certainly impressive stuff, Tom, for sure. So let's move to this overarching view. And we're gonna get a little bit more granular and specific in a moment, but let's look at this from a view from 30,000 feet, you know? So quite simply, what does it mean to educate students to be future ready? What does that mean to you? And what does that mean to us in terms of our focus on being future ready and having our students being future ready?
1: Yeah. So I really like to phrase that as how do we empower students to live life on their own terms? How do we create the conditions where they can thrive no matter their their abilities that they walk in with, that they can leverage their interests, their passions, their strengths, so that their experience is far more learner centered in nature. And so this notion of future ready as I'm talking about also goes hand in hand with my my thoughts and personal and authentic. So the work we do at future ready schools is meant to be very learner centered, right? How do we create the conditions where every student can thrive, no matter where they come from, no matter the zip code they call home. And so when we look at that at future ready schools, we've created a framework to um, to really support a very evidence-based framework, the key areas of transformation in schools. And I will tell you, first of all, like a kudos to the educators across the country who are working tirelessly to support kids, especially when they don't have the funding they need or the resources they need, especially leading throughout this pandemic and all the work that they've been doing. But at Future Ready Schools, we've created a framework to look at some of these big bucket areas of transformation. In other words, the areas that are foundational when it comes to shifting our schools to create the environments that our kids need. So to answer, your question directly on a student need on a student end. How do we create the experience where they're crossing that graduation stage, ready to live life on their own terms, ready to follow their interests, their passions, their strengths, where we've equipped them enough with the skills for life, right? And that's far deeper than, than sometimes we look at it. Sometimes I think in a K-12 system, we look at walking across that graduation stage as let's check them off the box. They graduated. We did our jobs. Nice work. We're in retrospect, like that's really just the beginning, right? And right. so how are we giving them the foundation to be able to live those life on their own terms. In referencing Future Ready, I'd encourage um, the listeners here to to check out futureready.org, bipartisan nonprofit. We don't sell anything. We do a lot of research and, and taking a look at a lot of different areas for transformation, but then we also really work with school leadership to make it happen. So I'll give you just a really quick, again, 30,000 foot view. We're sure. Working with school and district leadership on the outside of the framework is this notion of collabor- uh, collaborative leadership. You know, leadership's not by title. We really look at it as all by action. And when I look back on my own career, I think about some of the best school leaders I've ever worked with. And sometimes that was the support staff member making a few dollars an hour above minimum wage, yet was a backbone to our building, constantly stepping up. Maybe it was that third year teacher that was just crushing it for kids and breaking down walls and, and really influencing the lives of others and creating the conditions where kids were comfortable and safe and really given the opportunities to be who they wanted to be. Or maybe it was that 35 year veteran, right? Who, who had, had, it, was, it was her last year, but she was teaching like it was gonna be her best year because she recognized that those students only only time in seventh grade or what have you. When we look at the future-ready framework, let me just quickly talk about some of the components of the key areas that we have to make sure as we shift the systems moving forward that we we don't lose sight of, that we keep front and center. First being curriculum instruction and assessment. You know, our job is not to come in from a future-ready end and say like, here's the curriculum you should purchase. We look at that as this notion of how do we make sure the experience for students is relevant and for today's modern learners. You know, we can all relate to this notion of kids asking, why are we learning this? Why are we learning this? And we've all heard it, every educator's heard that. To me, it's a sign of one or two things. Number one, maybe we need to step back and really analyze some of the things that we do do and ask, is this the best way? Is this relevant for today's generation? Um, but number two, it really helps us reflect on what we do systemically as well. And maybe it is just a really good question or they don't see the relevance to it. And if they're asking that, sometimes they can't make the connection to why we're doing it, right? And everything mm-hmm. we know about learning, that connection needs to be there. So the curriculum instruction assessment is helping schools and districts and leaders to really be progressive in thinking about the experiences themselves to make sure that it's relevant for today. The next piece is the personalized professional learning. And I will tell you, we don't call it professional development. We're not mad at folks that do, but if you look at any study on the phrase professional development, what do people think of? Sit and get, hours-based accountability, kind of one size fits all. Now, the good thing is we've seen such a shift in the system over the last five to six years and recognizing, you know, districts recognizing what some of the best professional learning looks like, coaching side by side, peer to peer in each other's classrooms, those types of things, but recognizing how do we make us, how do we create a system where we're practicing what we're preaching? We're talking about personalized learning for kids, yet everything we do for our adults is one size fits all. It's hypocritical. Like there's no other way to put it. And so how do we mirror what we're saying is good for kids with our staff? And also how do we empower our staff? Tom, you and I are both people that we work with districts. We do a lot of professional learning ourselves with other with district leaders. And we're really proud of that. But at the same time, some of the greatest people doing professional learning are teaching in classrooms every single day and helping districts right. really enable that. Third piece is around budget and resources and taking a look at sustainability. Um, could go on and on about that one. Here in the United States, we've got um, this the, the, the funding that's come from the federal government around, around COVID. And we're going to see a fiscal cliff in a couple of years if we're not careful. And so we want to take a look at how do we maximize funds, recognizing every dollar we spend comes out of somebody's pocket somewhere. So sustainability is really a key there. Just to touch on the other ones very quickly, community partnerships. Mm -hmm. How do we connect with our businesses, places of worship and recognize when we say our kids, it's our community's kids. And how do we connect? We see a lot of great things happening at high schools with pathways and where they're leaving high school, graduating sometimes with an associate degree or certificate to be able to do things in the world of work that they're interested in. Lots of great stuff happening there. Um, Data and privacy, I had the opportunity to testify in front of Congress a couple of years ago in that area. And we talk about it from a future-ready end. Privacy is a non-negotiable. How do we make sure that the information that we have and that we're collecting, we're doing what we need to do in that area? Uh, Robust infrastructure, really the technology side that's on campus and off campus, something we saw really come front and center in the pandemic. And finally, the last one being the use of space and time. When we look at uh, the use of space, that's learning spaces. And we're not talking about being pretty for Pinterest here. It's really how design (laughs) impacts the brain and learning. And then the use of time is, you know, time's that one one of the only constants we have in education, and so how can we use time differently? And we see that Mm -hmm. often when we look at more mastery-based approaches um, and ways that people are are using time differently. So I think to to answer that question fully, those are some of the big bucket areas that we focus Mm -hmm. on. But as districts and schools want to transform into those that really can create those future-ready conditions for students, those are some of the areas that we have to really look at evidence-based approaches to shift the system while not leaving any of those out so it doesn't all come crashing down.
0: Yeah. You know there there it's such a thorough framework and I and I really appreciated what I what I really appreciated about the framework was that focus on budget allocation and financial decisions because as we know the the financial decisions we make, the budget allocations we make actually express our values and what matters to us and where we where we put our money where our mouths are. And, and when we do that, we really can back up the assertions we're trying to make about having our students be future ready, the use of space, the idea of the infrastructure. I think we're going to touch on that a little bit more uh, later on about the infrastructure and some things that happened during the pandemic. But you make me think about this idea of being a citizen being ready for citizenship and how can they be a future ready productive citizen in our society and i want to unpack this notion a little bit uh with you because i think it creates a bit of a dilemma at times for public school systems and and this is where i want to go like where is the line between a personalized education system and what society as a whole wants or desires from a public school system so here's what i mean by this you know, the public um, being, a you know, in society, a public publicly funded school system has at least some say in what the collective outcomes of a public education system would be, you know, if a public education is supposed to be the great equalizer, then we have to make sure it is that. Now, you assert that our job is to ensure that each student graduates from high school with the agency, the passion and the skills to be a productive, compassionate and responsible citizen. But my question would be, Who defines what a responsible citizen is? Is it up to the individual to decide that? Is it up to the teacher? Is it up to the school? Is it up to the state or the province that funds the system? Where is the line between the individual's desires and passions? And what is in the best interest of the greater good in society? So who gets to make that decision or how is that decision made?
1: Wow. So first of all, I mean, what a question. Second of all, do we have a (laughs) half a day for this podcast to really dive into? Third, I would say, have you seen any school board meetings on YouTube in the last number of months here in the United States? Because what you're really getting to is like, who makes the call? Who has the final say? What right do parents have? What should the, you know, should you be teaching on certain topics? Should you not? Should you need to avoid certain topics? Like this comes up when we see things around like banning books. And, you know, you see that big thing in in Texas right now, your schools cannot use these. Well, like, why is that that case? Like who can say yes, who can say no? And when, where is it? Will we make it available? And where's the parent? Right. You know, I I look at Iowa right now, they're going on something that, that in their legislature, where teachers have to put their process, this lesson plans and materials online a year in advance. Like, by the way, what does current events look like for that section? When you do that, right? Like, so many facets to that. And it really is about control and who gets that control. And you see that playing out, you know, the the whole CRT conversation at school board meetings, like, yes, you're teaching it. No, we're not. Right. So number one, what you're asking is really around this hot button issue of who has that final say, who has control. And I think there's multiple ways to look at it. You know, at the States, we're very local control based. And so what you were saying, I agree with where people do have a say because at, at, at at its foundation, you vote for school board members, school Board members now they really aren't there to choose the curriculum. When you look at why school boards are there, they're hiring the superintendent, they're setting policy and setting budgets. Now, watching them overarch into curricular areas has been fascinating in the last number of years because there are Mm -hmm. folks, to be honest, that are saying, "I want to say now I'm on the board, I'm going to have a say, so I'm going to dictate the type of grading system that we can have. We don't want to go to this this over here because our kids aren't guinea pigs. Like how many times have we heard that, right? And so really, really really boiling it down to who has control. To me, I step back and look at it from a public school end because in reality, there's other options out there. You know, I'm a person of faith. And if I wanted it to be the main driving force in everything for my students, it's a big, or my my students, my own children, it's a big part of their lives. But personally, I choose to send them to public school. Now there's areas if I wanted to go down a particular path that wasn't necessarily appropriate for, for public school, like I would have that option as a parent to send them elsewhere. And so part of it is this wrestling between... Where's the parents say, where's the community say? The difficulty is what's the reality look like? If when I was that middle school principal having 1,200 kids, it's not feasible to say, here's my 1,200 different curriculums because my parents want 1200 different things. Like you can't do that. So going to your note, what's really for the public good? And so when I step back, really fundamentally, public school systems are there to help support, in my opinion, the democracy on hand, to educate the common good, to have the skills for the workforce, to have the skills and some, and let's even broach this topic of like integrity. How do you teach that? What does that look like? Where does the moral compass come from? Who has the say on those pieces? And so for me, I think part of it really needs to be this of here's what we're doing for our community because it's what we believe in. Now, I think there's some variance there. I was recording something the other day with a a superintendent of a very rural uh, district in California. They have a very agrarian, uh, like everything they have there is people working in fields, lots of workers that are coming in. It's It's a very high need population that they work the field, but they're going to create some environments that give kids some skills to be able to thrive in their environment where if I'm in center city, Philadelphia, that program, those things things there might not be so relevant. And so on one hand, we want some of that control to say, here's what's going to be best for our community. The danger comes in, you know, many school boards, five person boards, you get people that run for kind of the wrong reason for their little issue, they can overarch and over dictate that working with a lot of superintendents, one of the struggles is superintendents can be and again, the, the um, when we look at this notion of being superintendents, they really they in one night, one vote, they can be out. And so as they right. push into transform and push to move there, they've got this constant battle of if they're not bringing their board with them, they can only move so far and do so much. So to mm-hmm. answer your question. It's going to really depend on that local control area, at least the way it's structured in the United States. And so, you know, I think on one hand, I encourage parents, I encourage students to use their voice to share things. So it really is upon the district to seek parent feedback. When you're looking at a new math program, whatever it might be, you need to engage the community because it's their students and i think the due diligence is to hear the voices hear the conversations hear the arguments on all side of things make sure that we're taking student voice at hand and we're really promoting that right if this notion of agency which you read in one of our definitions yeah. to give students the voice to be able to do the things they want to do they need to be in that and so where districts get themselves in trouble is they don't seek that parent input they don't really partner with them they don't mm-hmm. ask for student input and let's be real at times not even asking for teacher input, kind of here's right. what we're doing, <laughs> the level. and then that's a whole other issue there as well. So, yeah, for sure. And so, for me, it's how do you create this system where we're, we're including parents, including students, ex- including our teacher um, expertise and experience as part of that to make the overall curriculum decision that's best for the community as a whole. Now that's going to rest with the administration there with passage for budget ends. Cause a school board can say, no, a school board can say, we're not spending, you know, $200,000 on that new curriculum. They gonna they have that choice. So they can be that roadblock if they don't believe in it, but there also needs to be some checks and balances and whether right. that's with the school board, whether that's with, you know, cause if the, 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 we can look at it with best intent saying, well, yeah, we want them making those decisions and that's all well and good. And we do, but let's mm-hmm. face it. If we have somebody that's got the wrong mindset in a position to say, Hey, we're going to do things that aren't good for kids. There also needs to be some voice in communities, in our students, from our teachers to say, hey, we don't believe in that. That's not part of our core values. So I love your question because it's so complex. It's so deep in nature. It's so relevant for the world that we're living in, whereas Mm -hmm. people really wrestle with that control. In the Mm -hmm. best places that I see it happening, here's what I see. I see superintendents and principals that are community builders. And you recognize when you're making decisions, you're very rarely going to have 100% of your people on board, right? Especially if right. there's a shift, especially if there's a change, because we're asking people to do things differently. So in places where we see superintendents and we see principals being community builders, leveraging the expertise of teachers and the educators, leveraging student voice in the process, engaging our businesses, going back to that community partnerships gear of the framework, building the community building collaboration to say, here's what we want for our students. Let me give you one example. I'm thinking about Valverde Unified in California. Superintendent mm-hmm. Mike McCormick is a great friend of mine. They've grown their pathways program from four or five years ago, three or four pathways at their high school to now having over 40 pathways. But here's what they did. They went into their community and pulled in many of their business owners. And we've got business owner contact information. It's on our tax rolls and reached out to them and said, we as a district have your next 20,000 employees. What do you need for our community? What are the skills you need? What are the certifications you need so you don't have to rehire? If we've got all of your employees, work with us to get it there. And they've created some of the most robust pathways where they're partnering mm-hmm. with businesses, partnering with communities, and parents are on board because they're, you know, on the whole, because they're recognizing you're giving our kids skills that when they can leave, when they can, you know, leave us, they're going into the workforce, getting some jobs if they didn't want to go to that four year college, whatever it might mm-hmm. be. Maybe they do and they have a new skill set as well. And so I think being a community builder in this area is really important, making sure we do have the voice of other people. If it's constantly in us versus them, you're gonna get massive turnover from an administration and probably from our teachers as well. And everything is gonna move so slowly because it's gonna be this consistent battle so yeah. you know, depending on the issue it's really hard to say like that line is at right. the 30 yard line wherever it might be but we're going to make you make sure that we're community builders to make sure that we can really um leverage the voice because at the end of the day it is the community's kids our parents should have a say but it, oh, we can also have to be realistic about we've got 1200 kids in a school we also have to do what's good for the common good and right you know, right so lots of, <laughs> we could go on and on about that, that we day. could but really really interesting challenge there
0: Yeah, for sure. I think sometimes when we're operating out of the extremes or operating from the view of the caricature, it's never a productive place to be. So, for example, when we talk about personalized learning and somebody says, oh, does that mean there's 1200 individualized learning plans? No, uh, it doesn't. And it's never meant that when we talked about personalized learning. That's the caricature of what people Try to, try to say or try to use. Just like you would say, well, there are curricular standards that students have to reach. Well, then the caricature is this dystopian society where everybody's just compliant. And you know we, we use those extremes and those caricatures tr- to try to assert a position. And yet they're never the truth and finding that balance I think is, is really important. I, you also made me think of something, Tom. I wonder sometimes about the balance, not just between the self and the community. I wonder about the balance between the future and now. What I mean by that is can we or, or how do we avoid being too future focused that the school loses sight of who's in front of me today. I am a young adolescent when I'm 13 I am not an adult and I have certain needs that that the school should be attentive to as a middle school student, for example. How do we strike that balance between constantly having one eye on the future or both eyes on the future and making sure that we are not overextending and therefore being dismissive of where the learner is today?
1: Wow. Brilliant question. I absolutely love that. So I, I want to answer that through the lens of having a second grader, right? Okay. So when we think about it, if everything that I said to my second grader was like, when you're in the workforce someday, you're going to have to, he's eight. Part of him is like, I want to play Minecraft today, right? And That's so right. let's be totally real with the problem with also always being future focused is you can lose sight of contentment in the moment. And so one of the things that we've seen in the the pandemic is also this focus on mindfulness, even happiness. I'm a big fan of like Sean Aker's work and really looking at like internal happiness and how can we present in the moment, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think part of it is, yeah, we need to make sure we're not missing now. Like part of it is, you know, as districts, we encourage them to have a vision. Where do you want teaching and learning to be five years from now? That's a really relevant question. But if my kid is a high school junior I care about what you're doing right now because five years from now, they're not going to be here anymore. Right. And so it is this balance of, we can't give up contentment. We can't give up Uh, You know, appreciating the moment, also Mm -hmm. recognizing the amazing things that we are doing, right? And so I think even, and we look at, and I've talked to how many times have I said transformation or something already or being future ready, but in the same sense, let's also celebrate the greatness that's happening. And many times has happened for a long, long time in our classrooms. We can't lose sight of that as well. And I think Mm -hmm. we do have to appreciate those moments. And part of that, I think, is to pause and reflect and to recognize what are those things that are going on right now that are really good, or even looking at the pandemic, what are some of the things that we've shifted, whether it's instructionally or whatever it might be that we should hold on to? Cause maybe, Hey, we were forced right. to do it a different way, but there's some value there. Right. And I right. think celebrating in those moments, but I also think keeping your focus on your people, Right. The work is about people. It's with people and for people. And so if we're only thinking about where we want things kind of long term, we can really lose sight of those moments. And we recognize that every interaction matters. Every day is an opportunity. And so I think when we keep that front and center, whether it's that personal contentment that we're talking about, it's the celebration of students and the things that they've done. It's the recognizing greatness that has been in our schools that we don't want to change and being content in some of those moments. But then also, moving forward and recognizing what are the areas that we can continue to stay relevant for society. It's kind of like driving. You know, when I get in the car on a given day, if I were to drive from my office to back home, there's times I'll take slightly different directions. I want an idea where that end end goal is, otherwise I'm just driving in in circles all (laughs) night. But at the same time, I'm gonna use the interactions that are there. I might go slightly different directions based Mm. on that that feedback in the moment. And I think it's an analogy of, we need that vision, otherwise people are gonna get really frustrated. Why are we changing this? Why are we doing this? And without that vision, without people understanding it, that frustration absolutely ensues. But we Mm. also need to have the flexibility and agility to say, hey, what we're doing today is i'm going to shift this in the classroom instructionally to really ultimately do what's best for kids and we recognize just every you know it's why we can't keep every lesson plan the same every single year because Mm -hmm. who we're serving is changing and so that flexibility and agility today recognizes who's sitting in front of us today is really important but simultaneously keep working towards that that where we do want to be long term
0: yeah and i think you can have you know, both eyes on both. I don't think it's a binary choice that you're either attentive to today or the future, but I do think it's important to be mindful of of who is in front of you and where they are uh, because they will be different uh, when they get into the workforce and they are adults. You mentioned the pandemic. So I wanna slightly shift to that and just ask you from your perspective, did the pandemic kind of expose how future ready some schools are not?
1: Yeah, hundred percent, absolutely, and it's been really interesting to work with superintendents, you know, for a good seven yeah. years pre-pandemic. So let me give you an example, and it's a front and center for all of us here around home access. You know, Future Ready is an equity-focused organization, and when we look at it, we've been talking about students that haven't had home access at every workshop, every institute, virtually every session that we've done. And when we look at it, there's been a number of districts that over time have said, "Yeah." When statistics pre-pandemic in the United States were showing us about seventy percent of our teachers. We're asking kids to do something digital outside of school. But in our latest research in the pandemic early on, we did a state-by-state breakdown of how many kids didn't. And in the United States, it was about 16.9 million children. Disproportionately, it was our black and brown students that didn't have needed home access. So when we take a step back and we look at, number one, we knew the need was there. Number two, like, why did it take March 13th of 2020, which was the date for many districts that Friday- being yeah. like, oh shoot, now what are we gonna do? And so when we take a look when, from a future and end, many, many districts have come and said, thank you for really pushing us on that because we were equipped with some of the devices. Many of our students that didn't have access had some of the hotspots. And again, it's it's brought something front and center. I like to, I really like to share that in, in my opinion, like COVID didn't create equity issues. It amplified equity issues that have always existed. And right. so when we look at things like that, when we look at kids, you know, some of those initial thoughts if we go back to that week in March of 2020, it wasn't I didn't hear a single educator saying like, "Oh darn, the spelling test for next Wednesday, we're going to have to put off that first week." It was, "Do my kids have food? Do my kids have what they need? Yeah. Are they safe?" And really going back to those essential foundations of making sure people have what people need to be safe and to be able to come to learn. And so What have we seen? We saw, you know, the the federal government in the United States step in and say, you know, we're going to provide free lunch for every child across the board and breakfast if needed because we need to level that playing field. You know, we saw the influx of technology to be able to support off campus. We saw those needs because it really went back to the fundamental needs around opportunity and access and so to answer that question when we look from a future ready end there were a lot of districts that made a lot of investments in those things pre-pandemic right but there was also some districts if i'm totally honest that said oh boy i guess we really do need to care about this and i i do say that in a loving way but we have to look at our lens and say why were we blind to recognizing how many of our students didn't have access yet we were constantly asking them to do something they couldn't and then how many times did it impact their grade How many times, you know, I've never met a high school junior that wants to put their hand up and be like, you know, I didn't put that in whatever Schoology Google Classroom last night because I didn't have the access because right now I'm living in a homeless shelter or at a hotel or whatever, you know it's typically I've what I've often seen if we're putting students in that situation, you know, it's often that kind of shame and that quiet. And then sometimes now we're deducting points from a grade. And right. so it, I think it's forced us to take a really hard look at those kinds of things. It's forced yeah. us to take a look at things around grading and instruction and asynchronous learning. You know, in the United States, our Congress has used this notion of a learning loss and you want to talk about a hot topic, people get all yeah. fired up, you know, looking <laughs> at that. On yeah. one yeah. hand, I look at it like my own son, he missed uh, in-person learning half of his kindergarten year and almost his whole first grade year. So there's a part to it when we look at like reading and writing that like, you know, across the board, there was a lot of need there. if They just didn't have as much in-person time. Now I want to follow right. that up with to say kudos to the teachers who did everything possible to do things virtual. But I get, look, put like 25, 30 virtual kindergartners on a Zoom, like, Realistically, you're kind of limited in how long you can do stuff, how much you can get across. So, so I think it's really brought to light some of those instructional pieces to help us focus mm-hmm. on like what does high quality instruction look like? What is value virtually? What might that look like for some kids, if not all kids? And what could mm-hmm. that be? And really is bringing us back to even things around you know some of the questions around grading and engagement and what yeah. should yeah, that look sure. like. So i think if anything you know it has been a crisis we'd certainly never look to want to go through that but it's brought up some essential questions around some of these key areas whether it's access opportunity whether it's grading and instruction that if we don't look at it now and we don't make shifts now that we know are good for kids let's be real we're never going to do it like if we don't do that now with the influx of funding with the opportunity to say hey we've looked at this this is different when we get back to a comfort zone wherever that may be hopefully sooner rather than later just in terms of pandemic stuff like we're Mm -hmm. not going to make the shifts then and so we do see a lot of districts making those shifts in those different areas but yeah going back to i think districts that were heavily involved in future ready we were talking about a lot of this stuff and bam the Mm -hmm. pandemic hit fortunately a lot of them had gotten ahead of it a lot of districts had but the reality was it slapped us in the face a little bit to say, hey, we weren't prepared for a number of places and they need to face that realization and now actually do something about it.
0: Yeah, for sure. You you know, from an infrastructure perspective, uh, a lot of districts were caught. And I think that the, the past practice had been let's wait until we find out whether or not someone doesn't have access or a family struggling with that. And I think the lesson out of that is that we have to go get that information. We have to, we have to find it out. Cause as you say, they're not going to volunteer that information out of embarrassment or, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to put themselves in that vulnerable position. And then I think you're also spot on with the idea of pedagogically, assessment wise, instruction wise, there were a lot of conversations that got put off that, that the pandemic kind of, pulled back the curtain and said, you need to talk about these things. And because what was happening was so many kids were being given assignments or things that were easy to copy. They were, you know, sort of recalled. Now, look, you got to give it to teachers in those first few months, the pandemic, everyone was kind of in shock and awe. So You know, those early stages, I think everybody can be forgiven, but as the dust settled a little bit on the routine of remote learning, I think a lot of conversations were really important. And I also have to hand it to districts because a lot of districts, even though they got caught with the situation around infrastructure and students not having access, so many of them stepped up and really made sure that access to internet, et cetera, high speed internet was available to them. So I think that while this is not, I don't think you're intending it this way either, that this is not meant to be a criticism of, of educators or the systems. It's just meant to say, these conversations that began as a result of this this pandemic we have to continue having those conversations and continue to refine uh where we are and all of that so i want to finish up here by talking about relationships because i know that uh you talk a lot and, and everyone in education talks about this is another one of those things where we all know relationships matter um you know we teach human beings we don't teach widgets so we know these are people and they have emotions and we develop relationships and yet when you when you ask the question you know build relationships or what does that look like that could that could take on many different forms for people right some some for some people it's about never hurting their feelings or some people it's a it's in about tough love or whatever it is so from your perspective tom what does an authentic sort of real relationship look like between a teacher and a student
1: yeah i love that question so so to back it up a little bit I, I shared earlier how i really believe our work is about loving and caring about kids and everything else is secondary mm-hmm. to that it is one of the things we have going for us in public education is that law mandates they show up right so to process like if it didn't would they still come and so in many many places i would say the answer is absolutely right and why is that I would like to go on record and say like, I don't think it's because standard 1.2.4B is really exciting that day. I think it's because we're creating opportunities showing that belief in them. And so to dive into that, how do we foster relationships? I also think to to your point we have to call like what does a high quality relationship look like? And it's also about high expectations and accountability. And I think sometimes when we look at that I think it's easy for people to say, well I don't want to be that teacher because I have high standards in my classroom and they're going to learn here. It's not going to be a party every day. And it really gets Mm -hmm. to a mindset problem about what they think relationships is and also a control issue as to who's in control and what the real purpose is but when yeah. we really look at it when students are walking into classrooms you know it's that I, I can think back to that old adage of like don't smile until thanksgiving which is probably <laughs> some of the dumbest advice somebody could give yeah. a new teacher in that regard, because how do we create our environment where kids want to be? How do we create an environment and recognizing every interactions matter? So okay. I want to actually back it up before I mention the classroom level to the admin sure. level. I've never met a superintendent or a principal that doesn't preach relationships. And so one of my challenges for them is that's all well and good. And we all know that. How do you model it? Because right. when I think about sometimes when I ran faculty meetings, if I'm telling my teachers, hey, you need to build relationships with that student. Hey, you've got that one behavior issue in there. We'll just build a relationship with them. But then at a faculty meeting, I'm never prioritizing any time for relationship building. I'm asking me to, my teachers to do something that I'm not showing that I value. As opposed to one of my challenges in getting to work with and coach a lot of principals is, like, what might be the impact if the first five minutes of every single faculty meeting was some sort of team building, culture building, fun, something that just recognizes the human side of the work? And sometimes I'll throw that out there and I'll get a little pushback. But Tom, we only have 60 minutes a month. If I and I will lovingly push back and say, okay, Lynn, can we outline your priorities Because if it's not people at the top, we've really got to question why that's going to be. But any research on when students feel believed in, when they feel part of something, where they want to be somewhere, academically, it's going to be much higher than if a student's walking into an environment of fear, if they're walking into an environment where everything is like, I'm just going to take things away. And in those environments, from a research end, first of all, I think it's really important to look at. But second of all, just look at your own life. When you Mm -hmm. connect with people, and I don't care if it's when you go to church, I don't care if it's at that VFW, I don't care wherever that might be. The people you plug into outside, why do you choose to do it? It's the human interaction. And our brains are wired for that human interaction. Our brains are wired to want to be part of a group. Even if I'm an introvert, I want to have that sense of belonging. So from a classroom end, how do we create the sense of belonging from a neuroscience end so that they can be there? And it's recognizing the differences in our students as strengths, not as needs. It's so easy in our world in education to come at it with this deficit mindset, especially when we look at data. And I'm a, I'm a fan of data, but we have to do it in context of the individual story I like to call it the hidden stories within. And so we look at creating these relationships. How do we get to know each student on a personal level where we know where they care about, but then on a more global level at a school? One of the things I wrote in Personal and Authentic, I thought it was a brilliant story out of, I believe, Nevada. And I told the story from an article that I saw where what they did was they took every single student in their building and they put their name in a faculty meeting all around the room where they had every student identified. And then they had columns. One of them was, I know that student by name and fame. Like I recognize who they are. Another one was I can talk a little about their academics. And then another column was I can talk about things they like or enjoy outside of school, things that they're involved with, church or baseball, whatever it might be. And then they took every single staff member. I'm talking every custodian, every kitchen staff member, secretary. And they gave them all permanent markers to walk around the room and place check marks next to every student in ways of where they could say that they recognize them. They know them by name. They know their, and guess what happened? The vast number of students were recognized by name and our face, and that was really it. It was it. And there was this huge group of students that really become snapshots of pictures walking through our halls. So how do we get to know them? Who they are? What they like? What takes them on an emotional roller coaster? How do we get to know some of the hidden stories within? To me, it also really comes down to trust, and to me, relationships really come down to trust. And so, how do we build trust with our students? How do we build those relationships and build trust with our with um, our parents? who send us their most precious commodities every single day. Our parents send us the best they can each and every day. And how can we build trust there? Without it, relationships really are the foundation of learning. But it also comes with high expectations. It also comes with the conversations of, I know you can do more. I'm going to push on you because I know you can get more out of them. That also is that relationship to continue to push.
0: Yeah, you, you talk about time and attention with uh, teachers and students You talk about time, you know, time is the currency. And through that currency, we get receipts. So a leader who does not invest in relationships is not getting any, you're, you're, you're talking the talk, but you're not walking the walk. And I've said for years, that from a student perspective, I, I've always said that what adults give their attention to is what children eventually come to know is important. And you could say the same thing about leaders, what a superintendent or a principal gives their attention to is what the faculty or the principals will come to believe is important. And as a a principal, you don't not have time to invest in relationships with the people you work with to develop that connection and that shared kind of responsibility with the work. Getting to know learners, even high school students, you know, yes, teachers have 120, 150 kids on their roster. Can you know them as learners? Can you understand some of the idiosyncrasies of when they're in your science class or when they're in your, your, uh, just in your classroom or whatever, whatever experience you're having? Tom, I, I feel like I could talk to you for another three hours about all of this stuff. I mean, I love the conversation we had, but we are gonna finish up here. Uh, so we'll have to do a part B at some point down the road. Uh, two questions left as we finish up, and these are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Uh, and here's the first one, and you can take both of these questions in any direction you'd like to. But the first one is this, Educationally speaking, and I kind of think I know where you're gonna go with this, but educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night?
1: Oh, I, I can answer that right away. And I can tell you my answer has shifted over time. When I was a when I was a teacher, when I was a principal, I would stare at the ceiling worried about my kids. I would worry about the kids some of the connections. I would worry about some of the home lives. I'd worry about some of the poverty. But being that I don't work hand in hand with students every day, any anymore, at least the same group of students, what keeps me up right now, it's the mental health of educators where educators are taking care of people all day long. Many of them go home and take care of people at night and they get up the next day and they do it and they get up the next day that they do it. And they spend so much time taking care of other people with servant hearts and loving on other people that they run over themselves in the process. And that notion of self-care is not selfless. selfless. And so what keeps me up at night is the mental health of educators. And I do worry about that.
0: Yeah, we are constantly uh, giving to others. Uh, Listeners, you might recall from October, my conversation with Tina Bogren, same thing. Nurses and teachers are the caregivers, as she puts it. And the research indicates that we often put ourselves last. And and we have to find a balance because it is about the students, but it's also about our mental well-being and our physical health as well, so that we're there for our students and are able to to fully support them that way. Okay, last question. I really do appreciate that answer, Tom. Uh, Last question as we finish up, and this is more of a personal question than it is a professional question, but uh, the two will blend, of course. But it's a question about success. And if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what's your definition of success, how would you answer them?
1: to be a little bit better tomorrow than I was today. Just the notion of continuous growth, continuous improvement, recognizing that everybody's point A is different. So getting to point B is going to look different, but just being a little bit better tomorrow than I was today. Yeah,
0: I think uh, you know what you know on the micro level. Just instead of thinking about this grandiose definition of success, just can I be better than I was yesterday? Can I be better tomorrow? It's often a, an adage that a lot of athletes take, right? Just getting better each day. Just what can I be a little bit better at? So I love that, uh, listeners. Uh, there are no shortage of ways that you can connect with Tom. Tom, of course, as I've mentioned, is on Twitter. The handle is at Thomas C Murray, uh, Instagram Thomas C Murray Edu. Uh, you'll find Tom on Facebook. That again is at Thomas C. Murray EDU on Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, YouTube, Thomas C. Murray, uh, at Thomas C. Murray on LinkedIn. You get the the notion and the pattern here. Just search Thomas C. Murray and you'll find Tom in all of these different uh, uh places as well as the thomas c murray website that's www.thomascmurray.com also the future ready website i'll have links for all of these in the show notes listeners uh as you uh, if you want to connect with tom on multiple places and and uh also on the website there's lots of opportunities to connect with tom should you want tom to come and speak to principals or speak to your district or work with teachers uh, lots of opportunity to do that tom it was great to meet you uh I certainly uh was a very insightful conversation i really appreciated the conversation with you today thanks for doing this this, man. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. Glad to be here. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com podcasts Now let's get back to the episode.
0: In Assessment Corner this week, I want to finish up my exploration of trauma-informed assessment practices by talking about strategies. But I think my epiphany this week is that there is not some secret drawer of assessment strategies that are trauma-informed. Rather, we have so many strategies that many of you already use, and I think you can actually draw a straight line between certain practices and how they support students who've experienced trauma. And again, to be clear, I'm not pretending to be an expert on trauma, nor do I feel I have the depth and breadth to speak authoritatively about all that it means to be trauma-informed. This is my current learning, and this is a bit of a think aloud, as I've said, And I'm committed to continuing to do more learning about this. Now at the micro level, any practice that actively seeks to keep students in the calm or alert states, thereby avoiding alarm or fear, is trauma-informed. So from an assessment and grading perspective, I think it's as simple as asking, what makes students alarmed or fearful of assessment, and what can we do to avoid triggering alarm or fear in any of our students? Remember, the alarm state is characterized by resistance and their adaptive strategy in that state is to freeze. Fear is characterized by defiance and their adaptive strategy typically is flight. So if we can avoid any and all of that with our assessment practices, our grading practices, we will keep kids in the calm or alert state. Now what's one thing that causes alarm or fear in students when it comes to assessment and grading? Uncertainty. When anything in our assessment practices feels uncertain, the students are likely to feel alarmed or fearful. Remember, the state of alert just means that we are thinking outside of ourselves and we'll seek information from the flock, so to speak, to find out if we're making sense of the environment. Most people spend most days moving between the calm and alert states. But when alarm and fear occur, the level of cognition for students is emotional and reactive. I think the point is that any of our assessment practices have the potential to trigger reactions in all of our students. It's just that students who have experienced trauma are more likely to react at a greater level of intensity and for a longer duration. So what are some of those strategies? Well, obviously formative assessment, right? If everything students do leaves a mark in the grade book, especially in the era of open grade books, you could prematurely trigger responses. Even though we've said there are opportunities to grow, it might be too late. The home response as a result of poor initial results, et cetera, the home results that students fear may have already taken place after the growth occurs. But those initial stumbles, which are inevitable, are in the gradebook, and they're probably better served away from the gradebook to allow for the messiness of learning if, in fact, that that can be a trigger uh, for both the students and for families, for example. I think clear learning goals and clear success criteria we always talk about that but the straight line to being trauma-informed is that the idea of when those things are invisible if we're not clear on what the learning goals are if we haven't been clear on what success criteria looks like or even if they're opaque it's problematic because that level of uncertainty can really, again, trigger kind of an emotional reaction. I don't know where we're going. I don't know how successful I will be. And what will the reaction be at home? What will my reaction, you know, what, what, what is all about to happen to me? We also think about how students are being assessed. Now, you know, back in the day, there used to be an atmosphere of secrecy around assessment, around the format of a test or the content of an assessment. It was almost assessment as trickery. And I know that was my mindset back in the early 1990s. I don't, I don't think we see a lot of that now, but it does still exist in some places. Not knowing how I'm going to be assessed can raise anxiety. It would raise anxiety in adults, never mind students. And if my anxiety is raised, it is more likely to trigger a different state that will again trigger a different reaction. If I've experienced trauma, that reaction is likely to be accelerated and magnified. I also think uncertainty around grading. Uncertainty here can be, a, can be hugely problematic because grades can be a source even tangentially, but even directly, they can be a source of the trauma students potentially experience at home or from others, right? Either it's the ridicule that they experience from their peers or it's maybe something more severe that happens at home, but low grades can trigger, trigger a parental reaction. So the uncertainty surrounding grading can be an antecedent for the flight behavior, right? It's better no grade than a low grade. Now, another aspect of assessment that can be problematic is the lack of control. I'm not suggesting students have complete control over their educational experience, especially the assessments that are required to demonstrate proficiency over the standards. What I am suggesting, though, is that students have the opportunity to have as much control as possible in their assessment situations so they feel they can guide the outcome. Now, in many ways, the lack of control is what led to the trauma experience in the first place. The trauma was almost always done to the child or to the teen, and that lack of control is often what triggers a response, at least this is what I'm hypothesizing. I can see sort of a lack of control being something that triggers a fear or flight state. If I'm not in control of my environment, if I'm not in control of what's happening to me, then I'm out of here. Right? So what gives students a sense of control? Well, self-assessment, and you, you can see a Venn diagram between all of these different strategies that I'm mentioning here, but self-assessment, right? being able to recognize where I am in my learning, having clarity around the learning goal, uh, takes away the uncertainty, and then having some control is that I have some a- agency in determining my next steps. And speaking of agency, another thing that gives students control is the opportunity to explore their own curiosity and their own passions. Providing the opportunity to have some say in what I'm learning goes a long way for me as a student. right? Yes, there are expected provincial or state outcomes and standards, but there is a vagueness to them that I know some lament, but honestly, the vagueness can be used to our advantage to allow the broadest flexibility in terms of how students can explore and actually authentically meet those learning goals, those outcomes, those standards, which leads to agency in showing what they know. For us, we have to think about as teachers providing the greatest breadth of what is acceptable as evidence of learning. Now that doesn't mean we give anything away, you know, that doesn't reach the appropriate cognitive rigor of the standards or the outcomes. What it does mean though, is that we have a broad scope of what it means to meet the expectation and allow for multiple versions of proficiency wherever that is possible. Now finally, we have, you know, we had uncertainty, we had a lack of control, and finally I'm thinking about a clear pathway forward. Of course, again, there is some overlap with uncertainty and other aspects that I talked about, the lack of control, but I think knowing the pathway forward gives a little predictability to students. And this, I think, comes loud and clear through the practice of reassessment. When I know that it's not just a one-shot deal, that there's a chance to keep learning, that it's never final, the pathway forward is more learning, look, it may be rigorous, but we'll get you there. When students know that, then there can be a clarity around how they can move forward. You know, nothing will initiate more fear than an assessment being just a one-shot opportunity. Now, where that might not be possible to do that continual learning, because as students get older, sometimes there's a case to be made for limitations on reassessment or Some demonstrations of learning are really challenging to duplicate. I know you know talk about labs or shop classes or things like that. Then I think being mindful of the fact that reassessment can be difficult, we need to spend a disproportionate amount of time preparing them. So maybe even over prepare them, right? Especially early in the school year where there is a small window of opportunity for things to be different. The first glimpse that students have that they are not lathering, rinsing, and repeating last year's results can give them that little bit of hope and that efficacy that Cassie, Nicole and I often talk about when it comes to assessment. Now, as I said to you a few weeks ago, this was an exercise that was more of a think aloud than a deep dive. And it's my plan to continue to explore the impact of assessment practices on those who've experienced trauma. So many of our sound assessment and grading practices, if implemented correctly, really do align with ensuring that students avoid the fear or alarm stage that can emerge within the assessment paradigm. So that's going to be my question going forward, not so much the question of how can I be more trauma informed with my assessment practices, but getting a little bit more specific to say, how can I create an assessment and grading culture that avoids fear or alarm? We want calmness, you know, alert sometimes, but that calm alert stage is where students can think from their cortex, they are reflective, and they are creative. And I'm sure there are more specific, more granular practices that align with being more trauma-informed. And if you have other ideas or you have some specifics, and maybe you're more of an expert on trauma than I am, certainly I've just began to scratch the surface of my own learning about what it means to be trauma-informed. I'd love to hear from you, either through email or social media or something like that. And like I said, this was just me doing a Think Aloud and scratching the surface, right? My commitment is to continue to think more deeply about how our assessment practices and how our grading practices can lead to students feeling more supported and therefore avoiding that alarm or fear state. That can certainly come from uncertainty, alarm and fear can come from that lack of control, and alarm and fear can come from an unclear pathway going forward. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. You can also email the podcast, tomshiverpod at gmail.com. And a reminder to check the show notes for the links for the upcoming Grading from the Inside Out and standards Based Learning and Action trainings coming this spring. Next week, my guest will be my friend Tim Cavey. Tim is a middle school vice principal and the host of the Teachers on Fire podcast. So we're going to dig into a number of different topics with Tim. So please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially an Apple podcast, but anywhere you can leave a rating and a review would be greatly appreciated. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.